Hi, and welcome to the B2B Marketers on a Mission podcast. I'm your host, Christian Klepp, and one of the founders of I'm Blake Consulting. Our goal is to share inspirational stories, tips, and insights from B2B marketers, digital entrepreneurs, and industry experts that will help you to think differently, succeed, and scale your business. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to this episode of the B2B Marketers on a Mission podcast, where you get your weekly B2B marketing insights. I'm your host, Christian Klepp, and today I am delighted to welcome a guest into the show who is a seasoned B2B marketing professional with experience in developing and executing integrated marketing strategies that leverage communication, content, as well as lead generation best practices. So Sydney Payton Walton, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. We're really honored to have you on the show today, Sydney, and I'm really looking forward to this conversation. So um Let's say you, let's get the show on the road. Likewise, this is, um, talking shop is one of my favorite things to do because I'm that big of a nerd. <laughs> <laughs> well, that makes two of us. All right. <clears throat> you know, you've, you've built up a successful career and expertise around different facets, I would say, of the B2B marketing spectrum. But for the sake of today's conversation, let's zero in on one particular area, right? So that's okay. a go-to-market strategy. So, Sydney, you know, you've, You've been in this field for many years. Um, I'm gonna say I'm just gonna assume that you've seen it all, right? So, just um, for the sake of this discussion, just walk us through some of the most common mistakes that you've seen marketers make when it comes to go-to-market strategy, and how do you think these should be addressed? Yeah, well, you're you're right. I have. I feel like I've seen it all. Um, that's largely a function of um, kind of growing up in the business on being on and then eventually having the opportunity to lead small teams. Um, I always say my teams are small but mighty and we get a lot done. People are always surprised to hear what all we do. (laughs) Um, But the benefit of that specific to go to market is that you get a full understanding of how it all works together, all the moving parts um, so that you understand when you're building a go to market strategy, what are all the various levers stakeholders, players, who can I tap um, in terms of leveraging their expertise to help make my strategy stronger? So yeah, I have quote unquote seen it all, um, but really a lot of it functions in the service of go-to-market. So it's not all for nothing. Um, In terms of common mistakes, um, I would say first and foremost, which may seem unusual, is underutilizing or under-preparing your BD teams. Um, I think what we've seen specifically with COVID is that in a lot of ways, the in-person meeting has been all but eliminated. Um, Whether or not that's temporary remains to be seen. I'm sure it will return in some form or fashion, but, you know, possibly never to the degree that it it was in the past. Um, So I think as you look at go-to-market, um, and you're thinking about sales enablement tools becoming more critical, we have to rely on our BD teams, um, we have to help them further into the customer journey. Um, and we want, you know, demos and how are we wrapping go-to-market and those sales enablement tools around um, customer experience because they now are kind of a critical, much more critical touch point. So building sales enablement tools like demos, um, making sure that you provide solution overview training to your BD team. So really involving them in the steps before go-to-market, right? There are some companies who, you know, sales finds out at the time of press release. (laughs) 
um, that the tech yeah. team or the product team has developed this fam- fantastic new thing. Um, obviously, being thoughtful in the way you develop collateral, um, preserve, figuring out ways to preserve your training. So as new BD people come on, um, they're not in the dark about how, you know, maybe the existing BD team was prepared with regard to this particular product or service. So I really think people underestimate how critical the BD team is in the process. Um, that's just something that I think comes up a lot. Uh, another is limited information on who your actual end user is. So when we talk about B2B specifically, um, who, you know, as a business selling to another business, we don't always think about who the real end user is um, and losing sight of that persona. We get a lot of times fixated on who our B, (laughs) our second B persona is that we miss opportunities to really enhance um, the customer experience. You know, we miss opportunities to partner with that second B in the B2B to help them optimize and enhance their customer experience, which in turn means that they are more loyal to us. They are more invested in in what we offer and how we are helping them. So really having an understanding of that tertiary end user um, persona is another another place I think we are just short, you know, can be short-sighted, particularly when we're moving, you know, really quickly. And then I think it goes without it goes without saying just if you've been marketing any time, you know, over the last 10 years is ignoring the internet impact, right? Um, what we know is that customers are using the internet to move much further into the buyer journey. Um, so by the time they come to us now, by the time they're reaching out to BD, they themselves have a ton of you know knowledge and expertise or understanding, I guess I should say. Um, and they really want you to compete largely on price. You know, they're like, I've done all this work. I'd like to make a decision on, you know, all the bells and whistles are roughly the same. So who can give me the best price? Um, But I think, you know, understanding that there's a there's a way to embrace that. So making sure that your go to market strategy really embraces um, all the various possibilities of the Internet in terms of sharing your messaging and crafting your strategy and distribution process. But then also, I think having to go beyond traditional differentiation forces marketing teams to focus on the real true value proposition of that product or service um, and also the customer experience, which is, you know, that's a nod to B2C, right? And it kind of is one of those examples where the lines are starting to blur a bit um, because at the end of the day, business and corporate buyers are individual consumers. We have regular lives. <laughs> um, and so I think that it really forces marketing teams to, to innovate and think about what can we pull from the B2C experience that is universally kind of liked and now becoming expected, but also how do we really laser focus and refine and optimize that customer experience? I mean, I just think teams could very easily find themselves kind of dead in the water um, without that without that focus. Wow, you're on fire. <laughs> I like to come out the gate strong. Oh yeah, well you you definitely did that. No doubt no doubt about it. I mean you, you, brought, up, you brought up so many points that are uh, I mean they they are so they are so appropriate for this conversation. And um 
I had this conversation with a with a, a, a gentleman I interviewed um, on this podcast a few weeks ago, and uh, I'm going to use this analogy here because you brought up something that that just made me think of that conversation. It's almost as if, um, it, it's almost as if you have to compare this to like um, uh, like classical music and an orchestra, right? So you have individual musicians that are playing their respective instruments. Um, but they rely on a conductor to lead them. And everybody, conductor included, relies on a musical score, mm -hmm. right? So everybody has to understand their role and responsibility within that ecosystem and make sure that they know exactly when it's their part or, or when it's their cue, to use that <laughs> to use the uh, musical term, um, yeah. to make sure that everything harmonizes. Because, you know, we've all, I, I don't know, uh, I mean, I don't know about you, but it's been a while since I've actually attended an in-person classical music concert. <laughs> but it's, but you, you listen to when they're rehearsing and when they're like like trying to tune up their instruments and it's, it, it sounds a little bit awful, right? But then when they start getting into it, right? And then everything is just in sync. Right. That, 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 the then that, exactly, then the whole masterpiece just suddenly comes to life. Now, transplanting that analogy to what you've been talking about in the past couple of minutes, uh, it, it's, it's, it's so true though, because um, like you said, if companies are still choosing to like function in silos without getting their BD teams involved or asking people from the different business units that play a crucial role in this entire ecosystem for their contribution, well, then when, when this product or this service or whatever it is that the company is um, offering to the uh, target market then goes to market, there is a high probability that it may or may not work. Right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And we've seen different ways of accomplishing that. I'll say um, one of the organizations that I support, the, the philosophy is much more broad, right? Yeah. We, we talk about a new product demo. We show it to everybody, like the mm -hmm. full employee population. Yes. Um, and, and I think that even that, it goes hand in hand with understanding how and when your employee population can function as a brand ambassador and can extend your go-to-market message. Right. And th that's critical, right? Because if I'm an employee and I see that my company, you know, came out, I see it on LinkedIn, right? I have no insider context, um, then I can't be the best ambassador that I can be. But if the product and marketing teams work together to bring kind of an internal briefing to the full population, you get the full benefit of this is what the product does. This is who it helps. This is how, you know, um, how we're bringing it to market in terms of the unique value proposition or the strong value proposition. And you get a chance to contextualize it for anyone. Um, and then, of course, you know, you can drill down into your B team or your, um, you know, people on your CTO team who maybe are coming in and working on innovations or et cetera. But I, I really think um, it's a missed opportunity to not work together. I'm fortunate to work in an organization today that is so heavily, um, not reliant, but believes so strongly in collaboration and the power of collaboration that um, it, you rarely run across, you know, you run across Someone you ask to collaborate and they they say no or they don't make time. That just doesn't happen in this, you know, in my current organization. And I will say that that makes a world of difference when we're trying to bring something to market to the people. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I would imagine so. And 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 obviously it'll be to everyone's benefit. Right? Absolutely. Great. Um, 
You talked about it a little bit earlier on, but talk to us about the key elements that you feel are required uh, for an effective go-to-market strategy. Yeah. Wow. So <laughs> I know. <laughs> is that three? Is that five? Is that 10? I mean, so I think um, most key today is customer experience. Um, and it's on the verge of becoming overused. And I, it makes me nervous, right? Because the second we start overusing something, then what follows is dismissing it and then ignoring it. <laughs> and it's so important. Um, but I think just through the, looking at customer experience through the lens of identifying, um, you know, your target market, and I hate to say target, that's such an aggressive term, but identifying your ideal customer and thinking about products that that person um, or buyer or organization could really benefit from, would make their lives, you know, so we talk about product market fit. A lot. Um, and I think that what you're seeing now and the companies that are doing it well are finding these beautiful and innovative ways to infuse the, the customer experience um, into their product market fit analysis, right? Um, another is just like taking the opportunity to align that value prop, that messaging, the content. Um, I think we see a lot right now of push and pull between, um, you know, so I talked a little bit about how customers are using the internet further into the journey and which means they're not reaching out to BD as soon as early as they were previously. And when I say previously, you know, we're talking five, 10 years, not like pre-COVID just. <laughs> um, but I think Accenture did a study that discovered something like 57% um, of people or people are researching 57% of the customer journey before they reach out to anyone. Which is, you know, it, we used to talk about steps one and two, and then they're reaching out, right? So if buyers are self-serving over half of the buying process, you know, there's a, I, we talk about the push and pull and content specifically, right? How much do we give away for free? How much do we gate? Do we put out content that helps them get that internet research done? Or do we hold out and try to strong arm them into reaching out to BD sooner? And I think you have to make those decisions. I think supporting their internet research is my personal approach. I won't tell any other marketing leader what to do, but I think that you can only benefit from continuing to position yourself as a partner, as a value add. You know, we, we can't stop that particular train, right? The internet is here. It's full of things to learn. We can't stop the research process. Um, and quite frankly, we wouldn't want to, right? You buy you car research, Apple Watch research, you know, like we as individual consumers have those same desires um, because it's efficient. And so rather than holding out and pulling back against this emerging trend, I think we really have to lean into it and use it as an opportunity to enhance the customer experience with content. Um, yeah, Another, you know, who is it? Uh, who did this? The other study, Gartner, something like 80% of businesses expect now know that they are no longer competing on features, on value prop, on different, they're competing on customer experience. Um, you know, the number of people who feel like they're doing it well is slightly lower, but to 80% of companies know 
that that's what they're now competing on. I mean, we just can't, you know, we can't ignore that anymore. So I think that's definitely one of the key elements. And it's hard to wrap your head around because it's new, but you just kind of have to dive in and and figure it out uh, because we don't, it's not optional anymore. Um, And I think some of the ways that we do that are supercharging, you know, your digital strategy. Again, don't underestimate or ignore the impact of the internet. and, and really just leaning into all the various digital options that you have and creating a customer experience that is rooted in digital and extends out from there. And even your non, you know, your non-digital or your more traditional online events, or I'm sorry, in-person events or things like that should continue to be bolstered by digital um, tactics in your project planning. So I think to me, I've probably talk the longest about that because it is the most important. Um, and it's the thing that even I, you know, probably spend the most time trying to really wrap our arms around and, and get a good handle on because it is the kind of newest one. Other than that, yeah. I think just efficiency, right? Mm-hmm. Making sure that you have a clear process for this is what a go-to-market strategy looks like inside of my organization. These are the departments that need to participate or be represented um being transparent about what we're trying to get done and when um and really using that transparency to drive accountability whether that's more questions you need from the product team in order to develop a, a spec sheet or you know whatever that is that your sales and customers need um and i think honestly getting into a rhythm like everybody understands the process and agrees to play by the rules is how you reduce time to market you know, there are clear costs and business benefits to just being efficient. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. Um, no, those are those are some really great insights. And you brought up so many great points in the past couple of minutes. And and and, and just to hammer that point home, I think you, you brought it up at least three times now um, about the uh, going online, uh, thinking about mm-hmm. the digital ecosystem, thinking about the digital strategy, because, I mean, it was already starting to, uh, it was already becoming digitized if i'm if i can use that phrase absolutely pre pre covid uh but yeah if we go back like maybe 5 to 10 years and again not every b2b industry but there were many b2b industries where they were a little bit resistant to that uh that buyer's journey online mm-hmm. well and then suddenly bam 2020 yeah as you rightly uh, rightfully pointed out in person events gone trade shows gone any any possibility to go on a business trip and fly to actually meet your client in person well it's been, it's been shelved for the moment and um mm-hmm. it might come back next year it it might not um it might be a hybrid model who knows right but in the meantime um companies still need to function you still need to generate business somehow and what better way to do it um efficiently uh, to your point and at scale Right? right, because the thing about in-person events or or, or 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 doing these things in person, right, is it's a little bit harder to scale, right? Unless you've got the resources, whereby if you do it digitally, uh, it it just makes that process. Um, well, I wouldn't say it's easier, but it it it, it enables or it opens up the the door to um, possibilities that were previously um, not there. Right. I mean, I think just. Uh, yeah. What do you do even pre-COVID, but, yeah. you know, with COVID in-person events and organizations that host these events are shifting their dates all around to try and make room for enough people being vaccinated or whatever yeah. that is. Like, what do you do when you have to be in two places at once now? And two of your in-person events are now on the same week. 
or or back to back. And to your point about scale, you know, it's there's a considerable cost investment with shipping your whole floor setup, yes. you know, back and forth across the country, or worse, needing your floor setup to be in two places at one time. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> so exactly. there are just like fully logistical challenges um, sometimes to in-person events you know, that do impact scale. And can you mitigate some of those um, by enhancing or embracing a digital strategy or, you know, can you support with a digital approach? We're seeing a lot of, um, we're seeing a lot of formerly in-person event mm-hmm. hosts move to a virtual or a hybrid right. model for their event. So yeah. it's, it's happening, but everybody's doing what they can. And I think Mm-hmm. what the quote unquote new norm will be has yet to settle, yes. uh, but it's fascinating to watch. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and you know, you, you kind of um, talked about it already, which was a nice little segue into the next question, but you know, we've been talking about like, okay, um, in-person events and trade shows versus um, using, I wouldn't say the same methodology, but like trying to achieve the same goal um, mm-hmm. in a digital format. But what other uh, changes to the landscape have you seen, um, you know, especially with regards to go-to-market strategies as a result of this pandemic? And where do you, th- wh- wh- uh, how do you think it's, um, how do you think these changes uh, should influence the way that uh, B2B marketers develop um, their go-to-market strategy as a result? Oh, huh, good old COVID, right? Um, yes. <laughs> all we've done is think about all the, ways we could get back to normal. Um, but you're yeah. right. And it's sometimes even refreshing to think of um, what what is different, right? We're a small aside. <laughs> we're running an internal employee engagement campaign right now, um, asking people to reflect back on their year in quarantine um, and and tell us about two things, either the moment that you knew that things would never be the same or looking back, what lessons have you learned, right? What have you learned about what you what you need for family time? Or did you pick up a new hobby? Or is there a new recipe? Whatever, I don't, I can't tell you how many people learned how to bake bread uh, and whether or not they will go back to that. <laughs> I guess it depends on their motivation. Some of them were just bored. Some of them were like, I feel like we're gonna run out of bread soon. <laughs> um, but, but also just being able to think about what you will never go back to. Um, so I think to, I guess, to carry that, that thread through, there's a few things that come to mind, but reevaluating your event strategy is, is an obvious one. Um, conducting an ROI assessment based on where we are today um, and understanding that while the, the event itself may reemerge, will that event ever see 100,000 people again? Or, you know, will it see 30,000 people? Um, Or who has dropped out of your market as a result of COVID, right? So I think performing ROI assessments in a couple ways. One, reevaluating how valuable that particular in-person event is, but also getting a handle on what's the ROI on these virtual events that are popping up. You know, it's not necessarily one-to-one where, you know, you have an in-person event that, just fully shifts to an online platform, there's no guarantee that all of the interest and attendees and eyeballs and attention comes with it. So, you know, being diligent about assessing what is the value of our participation in the virtual event landscape, right? 
Uh, and we had to have many of those conversations last year. Um, and it wasn't always one-to-one. It wasn't always that like an, an in-person event that we felt confident in translated to a virtual event that we also were, you know, actively decided to participate in. Um, I think get with your marketing teams and really ideate on how to infuse, again, a rich customer experience into virtual events. You know, if you're going to host, if you yourself need to move um, to a webinar platform or, you know, if you used to host a tech day where you did all your product demos, you know, keeping a pulse on how to make sure that customer experience and the things that you've been maybe doing in your social media activity um, are pulled into that, uh, pulled into that experience as well, you know, reassess um, the channels that you're using, right? Is another really good one to me. Um, And I think of uh, one of the things early on, uh, when, when COVID happened, we were in the process of um, a value or executing on or ideating on a radio campaign immediately died, right? Because no commute means no radio. Um, unless, you know, you're of the FDR type where the radio in the house and the fire. <laughs> um, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I think just re- and bummer, right? You know, we had yeah. high hopes for that thing and we were pretty far down the road in terms of planning. Um, but that's a great example of it's, it doesn't mean that radio is no longer valuable. It means given what I'm looking at in front of me right now, it may not be as high an ROI as it was last year. And I may need to look at it again next year and just being willing to be flexible in that way. Um, and then going back to, you know, I think as companies themselves who host virtual events, whether it be a webinar or a demo campaign or something, keeping a pulse on, um, zoom burnout you know like maybe folks don't want to (laughs) come um you know how are webinars changing as a go-to-market channel in this age of zoom overwhelm um and how can we remain fresh is it that we don't have as many is it that we make them shorter is it that we have them you know earlier what do we change about um webinar delivery do we cut it and do we promote us cutting it you know um i think those are just really important things that as a result of covid we will we continue to evaluate throughout you know this time of quasi quarantine whatever version of quarantine you're in at this point um but also understanding that there will be a, a bit of a hangover period right like even if everything is back to normal tomorrow i'm you know, my webinar strategy is not back to normal starting tomorrow. <laughs> um, I think those are those are really important to me. Those are the things I spend a lot of time kind of tweaking and adjusting and, and thinking about how I feel about X or Y. Obviously, re-evalu- reevaluating those same customer personas like through the lens of your digital strategy, understanding in the hopes that you have given greater priority to your digital strategy in this time. Um, I will say that's one of the things that's never going back ever. So just lean in. Absolutely. And uh, yeah, my add um yeah, there'll be a hangover period minus the uh headache. <laughs> right. Minus the headache. I will say that. 
so no need for Advil there. But um, <laughs> so you you brought up um you brought up a lot of great points, and I have to say, it, and I think we all went through it last year uh, in one way or another. It was this whole like um having to adjust to this new reality of like just one is like not having to commute to work, uh, not having to go to in person meetings, not going to events or seminars or summits, um cutting down even our travel time to go anywhere, period, right? Or stepping out of the house without having to wear some kind of protection, right? right. Um, so it's, it's, it's a, it was certainly a, a, quite a mindset shift. Now, you take that from your, you know, your personal life and then transfer that to the uh, professional field and then think about like, okay, well, so how, how are we going to do this now? And, you know, in the grander scheme of things, how do we as an organization um, ensure that there is a certain degree of continuity while trying to navigate this very clearly challenging time for everybody? Right? Absolutely. I mean, I just think about how as we um, as we look at a, a return mm-hmm. to in-person events, just the, the considerations before that just didn't exist. Right. You know, we have we're we have a beautiful trade show booth mm-hmm. and in years past there has been um, a coffee barista inside of it. Right. Or you go to the big booth on the floor and there's a smoothie bar inside of it. We're not doing communal food anymore. Like there's no oh. open container. <laughs> so <laughs> what do you, how do you do that? How do you, you know, just being considerate of safety. Yes. These are just not things we dealt with before making sure that we invite enough of our people to cover the floor, but not so many that we can't properly social distance. Like it has forced us to just think of quote unquote work in all different ways. Uh, And it's, it's fascinating. And I think it's really pushed the limits of our creativity and our innovation. And those are the things that I hope don't return right to the old way. I think there's some things that, um, really brought out the best in, in us. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, you know, to, to quote the, um, I think it was one of the ad campaigns run by Apple a few years ago, uh, th- Think Differently, right? Yeah. Hey, it's Christian Klepp here. We'll get back to the episode in a second. But first, is your brand struggling to cut through the noise? Are you trying to find more effective ways to reach your target audience and boost sales? Are you trying to pivot your business? If so, book a call with Einblick Consulting. Our experienced consultants will work with you to help your B2B business to succeed and scale. Go to www.imblake.co for more information. You brought up a great point, I think, a couple of minutes ago about like um, Zoom fatigue and Zoom burnout. And um, there was there was burnout in a different form um, in in-person events, right? I mean, like we've all been to those summits or those seminars where people would just keep going on and on and on and on. And um it wasn't very engaging or interactive or it didn't just it didn't really generate those returns that we had all hoped for and if it's one thing at least for me and from my observations of the past year um you know having attended um different webinars and virtual conferences you did have some of these events where they they went the extra mile to keep people engaged because yes staring at the screen for three or four hours is quite a bit a bit of an ask so what they did was they they'd break people up into like you know uh, virtual breakout rooms, right? And so you, you, you know, they you, you're assigned a different activity. You're put together in a in a in a virtual room with uh, with strangers, and you conduct a brainstorming session on something. And then you come back to the main room and you present to everybody else, and that way you keep people engaged. 
while at the same time, obviously, you still have to, um, you know, fulfill your objectives of the day, which is, you know, to to um, to network with with uh, uh, the ideal the ideal customer and so forth. But doing yeah. it in such a way that it's it's creative, it's in, it's engaging, and it and it helps to elicit that response that you know at the end of the day you want, like you want them to walk away saying, "Wow, I, I actually really learned a lot from attending this event." <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah, and also even. Um... You know, watching who moved, you know, which event organizations moved onto a virtual platform, but you would still get some sort of conference packet in the mail. Yes. Um, Or, you know, who still brings some tangible physical element into the experience um, was, you know, fantastic. And there are some organizations who managed to merge digital and physical i had a we have a partner who you know close to the end of the year we were in the process of establishing our partnership right and i'm i'm the customer so b2b i'm the second b this time and you know everyone in there you know everyone sent had a little meme on their linkedin it said happy holidays and wishing you the best and like you know congrats on surviving 2020 and they actually stood up a little store where I could go. There was a thank you, but there was an acknowledgement that the year had been challenging. And then it had like uh, five or six things you could buy. But I say buy because honestly, it did not cost me a thing um, that were all related to kind of 2020, you know, in the spirit of wrapping up 2020, right? There was a book on affirmations. There was masks, <laughs> um, a, a water bottle, you know, a, a handful of things, but they all related back to their brand position. They all related back to kind of what they offer as a service. Uh, but it was this fantastic mix of digital like it was the you know they recreated the online shopping experience as an opportunity to engage with their brand but ultimately you know what i got was this beautiful package in the mail that had it had like you know this little tiny thing in it Mm -hmm. but um it again we talk about customer experience that's that's what that is right they went above and beyond they didn't just post you know a, a happy holidays meme on their LinkedIn or their, their Twitter, they created yeah. um, a customer experience that is, was memorable mm. and they were able to leverage digital um, elements. They were able to still pull in those physical elements. Yeah. I mean, you know, normally you get a Harry and David basket from whomever and, but yeah. we're not, remember, we're not sending food anymore. Right. We, people aren't sitting in their office and mm. we're not wanting people to, to ask people for their home address. So they took all those things into consideration and still managed to recreate that feeling. And I think that's, again, these things have forced us to be creative in ways that, you know, last year we just would have just rubber stamped. What do we do for client gifts? Yeah. yeah, yeah, (laughs) And left it at that. (laughs) Well, yes. So it's, it's, I wouldn't say it's pushed us into that corner. It's pushed us out the door to think about the different ways of continuing to engage yeah. Um, you know, the, our, our customers and, and, and potential prospects as such, right? I agree. Fantastic. Um, I'd like to get your thoughts on this, Sydney. So there's an, there, there's an article written by McKinsey, and uh, I'm, I'm just going to summarize it. It's just like top, top three points. Okay. So sales leaders within organizations are reinventing uh, go-to-market in the next normal, and 
the way that a lot of them are doing it is by centralizing commercial operations and generating actionable insights from what they call hubs, right? So they're not necessarily physical hubs per se, right? Um, so these insights enable these sales leaders to align sales reps to the right sales opportunities, which is always good, mm -hmm. <laughs> getting the right team involved, which is important, <laughs> and assembling the right people to innovate and design products and services, which will then in turn help the teams to close the deals, right? So by using this approach, and again, this is according to McKinsey, organizations can improve conversion rates and lower the cost to serve um, by five to 10%. So the question here is, um, and, and you spoke about it a little bit earlier, but um, explain the role that you think data has played and will continue to play in, in, in continuously improving and creating a go-to-market strategy that helps to deliver optimal results. And number two is explain the importance of continuous improvement and innovation. Wow. That's good old McKinsey, right? Forcing us to really do the thinking. Yeah. So first I'll say, I always love to hear and read and learn about when sales leaders are taking an active interest in tackling go-to-market, right? Um, I think so often it falls to marketing um, as this kind of sole owner and uh, you end up inadvertently communicating to other teams that they're not part of the process um, and that therefore it's not something that they need to be prioritized, need to prioritize in an ongoing fashion. So bravo to them for tackling, you know, the sales perspective on go-to-market. Um, I think that that works for some specific kinds of B2B um, formulas, for lack of a better word, or equations, right? It's not going to work for every B2B, you know, probably software, SaaS, all that, right, right, prime right. candidates for that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I think on the whole, you know, if we're taking all B2B as one, uh, there's definitely some, there's definitely some upside mm -hmm. to that. Uh, I think embracing data in the way that marketing had to five, 10 years ago can only mean good things for sales, you know, and this whole sale centralizing sales has been going on forever. You know, you stay with any company long enough and you've gone through like at least three <laughs> centralized, right, decentralized, right. centralized, decentralized. Well, that part um, of it, that part of it at least isn't anything new. Exactly. And I think that um, in using data to make those decisions really might cut down on the amount of back and forth yeah. Um, but I, I have been on the, the receiving end of that, right. Which is, you know, you get on a sales call with a potential, um, service and they're using chorus or some other software to record the sales call, um, and understanding, I think for however comfortable that makes you, um, I think there's great value in taking a more data-driven approach to um, to learning what that sales and customer interaction is like. What is it lacking? What does it need more of? Um, I think you can only make your sales team better, more effective, more efficient, and ultimately more successful if they have in data-driven insight into how to how to prepare. Um, I also think that those data outputs are present an opportunity for 
us as marketers to refine the customer experience, right? Um, once we know, a couple things come to mind, I'll say that. Um, as marketers, we have a better idea based on how those conversations go, how to refine the customer experience, right? We know what's missing, what questions come up most often. And does that indicate that a particular feature is missing from the product or service? Um, I think it reduces the risk of misinterpretation. So a lot of us know that the salesperson, we rely quite a bit on sales to tell us where the customer is, right? What are they, what would really kind of get them excited, what they really are asking for, what they're complaining about. How, I can't count how many times marketers have asked BD and sales, what keeps your customer up at night? Um, and I think that while that a question is age old, it is still appropriate. And I think, you know, an approach kind of like what McKinsey is describing can help answer that question using data. Um, and I and I think that it reduces the opportunity for a BD or salesperson to misrepeat <laughs> what the customer really wants. And there are multiple people invested in that answer, right? Marketing, product, you know, that those that feedback could be what a V2 looks like. Um, so I think that there's a lot of benefits to the data-driven, you know, approach. Um, the role of data in go-to-market is just as critical as it was for content marketing, just as critical as it is, you know, with regard to persona building. I mean, we rely so heavily on SEO and everything, you know, audience targeting is kind of this new cool area of SEO. Um, and that's quantitative and qualitative data, right? Um, I can, Reducing... You know, average say understanding. I'm trying to think of a great, a good qualitative, quantitative example. Um, average sales cycle for a product or service, right? Um, and can we shorten that sales cycle by having more effective um, client meetings? And do we get to more effective because we're better able to train our BD and salespeople on what the talking points need to be, um, or or how to present the features or how to, you know, really lean into the value proposition? What can we do to optimize the way we train them? And how are we shortening the sales cycle as a result, you know, with clarity and things that are otherwise seen as qualitative? So I think understanding um, that is a really critical upside to data. Also, I'm thinking um, reducing go-to-market costs you know, the ability to zero in on our most effective distribution channels. And that's not necessarily new, right? We we do that with social media analytics all the time already. Um, we do that with email campaign clicks and links, you know. Um, so being able to be more strategic about where we spend those go-to-market dollars with regard to distribution channel and using data to understand where we're getting the most bang for our buck. And some of these are, this is just common sense, right? Um, let me see. Is there anything else? Well, well and it also takes the, uh, the the guesswork out of the whole equation, right? Which is which is equally as crucial. Like for example, and and I'm and I'm sure you've you know you've done this many times before, but how many touch points are there actually in the journey? Right. Mm -hmm. That 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 um, not just marketing, but the but the BD team needs to be mindful of. Um, and to your point, 
um, or from earlier about content, like how many pieces of content does the ideal customer uh, read, or if I'm going to use that term, consume and digest? Right. Because uh, you know, talking about like them, and and it's totally true. I've I've read the report. I think it was it must have been Accenture, but um, that the target audience or the ideal customer um, does a lot of research in advance before. Before they even reach out to the BD team for a demo. Mm-hmm. So how many pieces of content do they read before that happens? Right. And what's the balance on types, right? We, yes. we talk a lot about long form content versus yeah. short. And, yes. you know, what's the, what's the dance? It's such a delicate dance between content that resonates with the customer versus content that serves your SEO right. needs. And right. so, yeah, all of that, how much of it and in what forms, yeah. you know, do they want 10 pieces of short content? Do they want one long white paper? Um, do they want to watch a one hour YouTube tutorial on something? Probably not, but like, <laughs> probably not. Right. But I've absolutely seen that, you know, oh, yeah, LinkedIn, um, LinkedIn kind of revamped their ad platform at the yes. end of 2020. And I watched so many people upload these very detailed click-by-click tutorials. Mm. Um, And yeah, 40 minutes, 60 minutes, as we approach, you know, the 54-minute mark in our little chat. Um, (laughs) You know, I understand that sometimes you just have to chunk it out and figuring out what is the best thing. So I think that that's critical. Data can help sales in so many ways. Mm. And sometimes our marketing data can help sales as well. There again, there's no silos there. Like no. I often am going to the program delivery team for some of their data to inform my needs. You know, like this is a, they call it a sales cycle for a reason. It's it's yes. cyclical. It's circular. <laughs> indeed, indeed. indeed. <laughs> Fantastic. We come to one of the uh, favorite, uh, my favorite part of the interview, and it's talking about things that you know you. Uh, we call them conventional wisdom, commonly held beliefs. But in, in this particular case, I'd like to I'd like you to talk about one commonly held belief that you strongly disagree with and why. And also in terms of like a piece of advice that you would give other B two B marketers out there in terms of what one thing they should start and one thing they should stop doing when it comes to go to market strategy. Over to you. Oh, this is immediately now my favorite part too. <laughs> I love these questions. Um, things that commonly held beliefs that I disagree with. Wow. Just one. I'm sure my husband would say that I have many. Um, <laughs> but specific to marketing, I think um, I don't agree that you need a fully baked plan to get started. Um, I think as marketers, planning a lot of what we do revolves around intricate planning right there's a lot of there's a lot of channels available to us there's a lot of content pieces available to us and we have to we're constantly searching for the perfect marriage of all of those things um and we rely rightfully on planning um, to do that but i think you know how can we claim to be agile if we require a hundred percent of the information to get started um it just kind of runs counter to who i think a lot of companies believe they are or want to be, um, and quite frankly, who a lot of our customers expect us to be, right? Um, I think, yeah, you need some good bones, but innovation and creativity are sometimes born in the gaps. And so I would say, don't be afraid 
to have some gaps when you're getting started and trust in your project leader or your marketing leader to understand when those gaps are true risks versus, you know, when they're opportunities to fill a vacuum with a, some new bright, bold idea. Um, you know, gaps are not inherently bad. Um, as far as starting and stopping, wow, it's probably a little a little bit of both. Um, start, you know, define, challenge yourself, I think, start defining that connection between um, your product or your service and your company mission. And I think what I would love to see people do, particularly in small and mid-sized B2B companies that are either just starting out or getting ready to turn a big corner, is don't abandon your mission um, in pursuit of growth and expansion. Um, I think it makes for stronger value propositions. It makes for better customer stories on the back end um, when your product and your service are mission aligned. Um, so I would say I really want people to keep doing that. And in doing that, um, stop believing that sales and marketing are at odds. Yeah, I great, think, advice, um, great advice. <laughs> that's It's just not true. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah, so yeah. while there are some process things that on the surface might look like we're putting them in, you know, competition. Mm -hmm. I think in making sure that the products and the services that we are trying to sell are mission aligned, um, marketing stands right in the middle of that, right? Like we are the kind of the mirror. We're holding sales and product development teams to the task of saying, hey, how is this mission aligned? Let's talk about that so that we can tell that story so that we can bolster the success of your, your product or service. Um, I know many people who are hungry for the stuff that marketing puts out. And granted, you know, sometimes we fuss about like, I, it was already on LinkedIn. Why didn't they just share it? Or, you know, we wrote this white paper already last year and they come asking for it. And I think sometimes we just have to let that go and meet them where they are. And if you find a person, you know, I worked with a woman who could not be bothered to spend an hour on LinkedIn every day, kind of, you know, in the same way we read the morning paper, she could not devote that kind of dedicated time to her LinkedIn. But if I would just give her the link to a few pieces of content that I knew aligned with her client profile, she was happy to post it. Now, I don't want to be necessarily become a concierge for every salesperson, but if I know that a particular salesperson is eager to support our efforts and to amplify our efforts, and I know what it takes to put them in a position to do it, there's no reason for me to say like, oh, sales and marketing don't like each other. You know, I'm not going to do it. It doesn't, it doesn't help the overall goal. And so I think yeah. meeting them where they are is the best thing we can do to start breaking down some of those perceived conditions. <laughs> Yeah, perceived barriers or, you know, perceived tensions yeah. and so forth. But like, you know, that, that was such great advice. And I and I'll, I'll go a step further there and say that sometimes, you know, you need to treat these relationships like actual relationships or like a like a marriage, because there's a lot of there's a lot of compromise, right? Like there's a lot of things where, OK, well, we we, we know that this person has, um you, you know, um I wouldn't even call it a pet peeve, but you, you know, it, it's it's really important to understand the the different dynamics within teams, and see how you can work together with people and make sure that you know it, it all moves forward somehow, right? Absolutely, and I think that um, I think that you know that colleague and I 
as colleagues became closer, right? There's a mutually Mm -hmm. shared goal. There's a mutually shared vulnerability sometimes. Um, And being, you know, her being able to say, I just cannot make the time for that. I promise it's not you, it's me, right? (laughs) (laughs) And just like in a relationship, like nothing is 50-50 and sometimes it's 70-30, but I also know that, you know, I can go to her and ask specifically about something that's maybe going on in her client portfolio when I need a proof point or whatever. So there's a lot of give and take. There's so many areas for sales and marketing um, to work together that um, I, I just don't think it serves us to continue to believe this myth that mm. we're at odds. Um, I can't no. think of the author right now. There's a book called Unleash Possible. Mm. And she talks extensively about the relationship between the two and building a positive work, work, working relationship, almost in an inspirational way, right? I read the yes. book and was like, let me retackle sales and marketing relations again. Um, so yeah, yeah, I think that's a game changer. Exactly. Well, it, it's about, again, it's about compromise. It's about finding that common ground, right? Exactly. And, and recognizing that it's largely in place already. Like, yes, we are, I, I can tell salespeople, we're the on-ramp, right? We're just yeah. the freeway. We're not trying to take your job. We don't, you know, our process largely stops where yours starts. Mm-hmm. We're just trying to get you a warmer candidate. You know, we, yeah. we work, we serve at the, you know, in support of sales. It's our job to make your life easier. And if we're not doing that, then like, let's talk about where the two are not in communication. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Sydney, this has been such a great conversation. I think you've added so much value, you know, imparting your experience and insights. Please do us the honor of, um, you know, telling the listeners a little bit about yourself. (laughs) (laughs) Well, this has been fantastic. Um, So a little about myself, if you haven't um, realized by now, is I come to marketing from the communications world. Lots of talking I did. Um, (laughs) I I had the great fortune of um, a high school experience that was designed largely around writing. And um, I always say writing is my superpower. It's what brought me to marketing Mm -hmm. Um, many years ago. I started as a copywriter, spent some time as a proposal writer, all the things. Um, And so I am forever grateful to a couple high school teachers who will go unnamed because they mean nothing to your listeners. <laughs> uh, other than that, um, I, like you said at the beginning, I've spent, you know, 15 or so years in this space. Um, I really love working with companies that are kind of on the precipice of big, big transformational growth. Mm-hmm. I think they have a beautiful blend of scrappy um, and visionary. And I love to kind of come in and, and try to build just enough process to harness um, the the beauty of kind of what they're about to do. And <clears throat> I think that at those I'm drawn to those kinds of organizations. One of the things I love is volunteering my time at nonprofits who kind of fit a similar profile um, and maybe don't understand how to leverage what they think of as very kind of corporate marketing. And they, you know, don't really understand how the very same principles apply to fundraising. Um, and really helping them see transformational growth in their fundraising and development by applying um, just kind of what I've gathered over the years and in my professional life. It's really rewarding to be able to do that. 
Fantastic. You, you know, you gave yourself away a, a, a little bit there. That you know, you, you know, when when I heard you say that, that you what, what was that description you used? Precipice of big transformational growth. Like, yeah, she was definitely a copywriter at some point. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I uh, my husband is like, I'll never win an argument. Like, <laughs> <laughs> because you'll just wordsmith everything. <laughs> right. I always say, don't let me write a letter. Don't give me the time to sit down and write it. You know. Um, because then, you know, we're not having a, a fair fight at that point. Um, but I've gotten oh, a lot awesome. better over the years at letting other people do their part, too. Um, I have, I'm fortunate. I have worked with some amazing writers on my teams. Um, and so they laugh at me that I can spot, you know, two spaces after a period with the naked eye. But oh, yeah. other than that, you know, I'm fortunate that I get to leave quite a bit of the copywriting to, to some other experts in the field who I'm mm. fortunate to have worked with over my time. And marketing. Other than that, you know, I'm pretty straightforward. I'm a jack of all trades, which is quickly a dying breed in marketing, right? We mm, talked a little yes. about how as the landscape becomes so specialized, I won't yes. say segmented because that sounds negative, but so specialized. Yeah, specialist um, versus generalist. And, right. And I am definitely a generalist and yeah. I, I get so much satisfaction from that. So, yeah. Well, fantastic. Um, what's the best way for people out there to like uh, get in touch with you? LinkedIn is probably the best. I love to connect with both like-minded peers and those who have questions who are maybe starting out mm -hmm. um, on a journey that maybe looks like mine. Yeah. I am Sydney Peyton Walton on LinkedIn. Not hard to find. I don't have any trick names. But yeah, I would encourage anyone who wants to just kind of be in community to reach out. Fantastic. Fantastic. Once again, Sydney, this has been such an insightful, informative session. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing and uh, Thank you know, you. take care, be safe, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. You as well. Good luck to you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye for now. Bye. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the B2B Marketers on a Mission podcast. To learn more about what we do here at Einblick, please visit our website at www.einblick.co and be sure to subscribe to the show on iTunes or your favorite podcast player.